One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 28th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It's day five of war in Ukraine. The Russian invasion is slow, but it is bloody and war could rage for some time to come. I fear this conflict could be very, very bloody. And we've already seen uh, civilians targeted uh, by, by, the Russian, by the Russian government. I urge the Russians not to escalate this conflict, but we do need to be prepared for Russia to seek to use uh, even worse weapons. That's the British Foreign Minister Liz Truss speaking to Sky News. Putin threatened using nuclear weapons over the weekend because he said NATO powers had made aggressive statements against Russia and himself as president. This is really a pattern that we've seen from President Putin through the course of this conflict, which is uh, manufacturing threats that don't exist in order to justify further aggression. And the global community and the American people should look at it through that prism. We've seen him do this time and time again. At no point has Russia been under threat from NATO, has Russia been under threat from Ukraine. This is all a pattern from President Putin, and we're going to stand up for it. We have, we have the ability to defend ourselves, but we also need to call out what we're seeing here from, from President Putin. White House spokesperson Jan Sauki. Meanwhile, Europe pledges to providing lethal weapons to Ukraine. For the first time ever, the European Union will finance the purchase and delivery of weapons and other equipment to a country that is under attack. This is a watershed moment. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, so European weapons will be used in the battle against Russia and so too the possibility of British nationals becoming directly involved in fighting off the Russian invasion. I, I, do, uh, I do support that. And of course... Uh, that is something that people can make their own decisions about. But support, they, are, they are fighting, the people of Ukraine are fighting for freedom and democracy, not just for Ukraine, but for the whole of Europe, because that is what President Putin is challenging. And absolutely, if people want to support that struggle, I would support them in doing that. So you support Britain, people from Britain going over to Ukraine to help in the fight? Absolutely, if that's what they 
want to do. Liz Trusser again speaking to the BBC that time. Let's speak uh, to Colin O'Gorman, the Executive uh, Director of Amnesty International Ireland now. Good morning, Colin. Thanks for joining us on day five. Uh, But uh, I think it's probable that we'll be talking about 365 days of bloodshed or who knows how many years of war that we have ahead of us. And despite how war should have been relegated to European history, here we are. Is there any other possible outcome at this stage, as things stand, other than years of war ahead? It's difficult to know, Michael. As, as you'll hear, there, are, there have been reports over the last couple of days of, of, of peace talks taking place on the Ukrainian-Belarusian border um, between Ukrainian and Russian officials uh, uh, today. So we'll see what comes out of that. But, you know, there's been an awful lot of um, supposed peace talks or supposed de-escalation talks that Russia has taken part in in the run-up uh, to its uh, unlawful invasion um, of uh, Ukraine uh, a number of days ago now. So um, I think the major concern right now continues to be the impact upon civilian populations in Ukraine, uh, the huge pressure now that's being created from uh, by people seeking to leave Ukraine to seek protection in other countries. We're seeing indiscriminate weapons being used against civilian populations uh, in Ukraine right now by Russia. Uh, these could constitute war crimes. Um, we're seeing really significant violations of uh, international law, humanitarian law, um, by Russia in, in the last number of days. I mean, Russia, for instance, they've launched indiscriminate attacks on civilian areas, strikes on protected objects such as hospitals. Um, we documented in recent days incidents that we think killed at least six civilians and injured uh, 12 more. We heard over the weekend that Ukraine is saying that the number of civilian casualties is now heading towards 400. Um, We documented uh, a number of attacks, for instance, on schools uh, since the conflict started. We also documented um, the use of cluster munitions, which uh, struck a preschool in northeastern Ukraine on the 25th of of February. But this is a widely banned uh, um, munition. Explain to uh, us what it is. Cluster munitions. A, a, a cluster munition is a is a, is effectively a bomb with hundreds and hundreds of little bomblets within it that's dropped, and just at a certain height before it hits the ground, it opens up and disperses those bomblets. Will then explode, but then explode before they hit the ground. And the intention is to kill as many people as possible. And so impossible an, to predict an, where they'll hit. It's an anti-personnel weapon, uh, um, and it spreads across a very very wide region. So. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's an obscene weapon at the best of times, which is why um, it's been largely banned now internationally. But Russia, unfortunately, um, has, a, has a, a record of using this particular weaponry. And now we've documented its use in northeastern Ukraine. Um, and as a result of that attack, uh, three children were, uh, three mm. people were killed, including including a child. Mm. So we're really, really concerned about about breaches of international law, obviously, in the context of these kinds of war crimes. But the targeting of civilian populations is now very, very clear indeed. I mean, mm. Russia is is firing indiscriminate indiscriminate weaponry into civilian areas. Uh, um, um, so it's 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 very clear. Um, that Russia is breaching international humanitarian law in that regard and is likely guilty of, of war crimes. Okay. And then similarly, we're seeing the, the outflow of people from um, mm. Ukraine. Yeah. As of yesterday, the UNHCR, UN High Commission for Refugees, was saying that 368,000 people uh, had fled uh, Ukraine so far. 150,000 of those uh, are, are now in Poland. Uh, Poland is obviously now under very significant pressure in terms of the number of people that are crossing over over the border there. There's real signs that the Polish people are responding with a huge amount of generosity, but there are very, very significant issues on the border crossing in, in trying to get people across the border. 
Similarly, people are flowing into Romania, uh, large numbers into Romania, some into Hungary. So there's a real need now for the for the EU, and, and this is what we were calling on on um, uh, EU uh, justice and interior ministers um, um, to look at yesterday. There's a, there's a huge need to ensure that they access that they ensure access to the EU and reception for all civilians, and then where that's necessary, also arrange safe onward transportation mm. because. We're likely to see a huge number of... And, and they've responded positively, po- positively. I think no visa requirements anywhere in Europe for the next three years, it seems. I mean, visa requirements, that's very, very welcome indeed. I mean, the, 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 one of the things we called for was the, was the activation of the Temporary Protection Directive, which effectively is, 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 what, is, is what leads to that suspension of visa requirements for a period of three years. But then they also need to make sure that logistically um, countries who are receiving large numbers of refugees have the resources to be able to respond to that need. And that's clearly not the case right now. If you look at the situation, for instance, on the Polish border, massive challenges in terms of being able to process and and receive the number of people Mm. who are coming. Real issues around whether or not the facilities are available to support people properly. To be clear, this is despite the fact that it's very, very clear if you just look at social media and other spaces, there's there's Polish people are really stepping up and and, and trying to do their absolute best in, in that regard. So, but we need to make sure that the resources are put in place at the EU level to ensure that there's proper reception of facilities put in place for all civilians and then that there's safe onward transportation. Countries like Poland, uh, Romania and others who happen to have borders with Ukraine cannot be left to deal with the refugee crisis that will flow from this conflict in the way that, for instance, we saw Greece, uh, Italy, Malta being left to deal with the refugee flows that resulted from conflicts in other parts of the world. That, that, that would be absolutely shameful. How bad could it get? Because we talk about these cluster munitions and as dreadful and illegal under international law as they may be, you really are only scratching the surface, it would seem, in terms of uh, the Russian clout and uh, the weaponry that they have at their disposal. The might of the Russian army uh, is yet to be felt, I would uh, imagine. Uh, and this could uh, extend out uh, to Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, uh, it could extend out beyond that. Uh, could the Russians even look at uh, this decision of uh, the European Union to arm Ukraine uh, as a, an act of war in itself and that would warrant retaliation? Yeah, I mean, that that, that would be pure speculation on my part. I'm, I'm mm. not an expert in that regard at all. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it seems to me that that a number of the countries you just named there, for instance, are members of NATO. So attack on those countries would be an attack on NATO and on the NATO alliance, and, and that would hugely escalate this conflict. That would draw um, the full NATO alliance directly into the armed aspect of this conflict. Um, it's, a, it's an incredibly dangerous situation. And, and just to say, for those of us who are over, you know, in this part of Western Europe, I mean, the people in, in Central Europe... Uh, are, are obviously feeling a huge amount of insecurity and fear as they watch what's happening. Um, you know, it's, it, it may well be many generations now since 1939 and since the, 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 the German onslaught across Europe and, and the annexation and takeover and invasion of large parts of Europe. But that trauma is very much multi-generational in, in, in Central Europe. And there's huge, huge concern about how this could play out now. And it, it, all of this is in, in, in relatively recent living history for huge numbers of those populations, both the, the impacts of World War II, but then the, 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 outfall, the, the fallout from that in the context of the rise of the Soviet Union, the takeover of all of those states. Um, so there's huge, huge uh, uh, anxiety and understandable insecurity um, amongst populations in that part of the world. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think it's important that we 
that we think about in this context. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the concern of escalation is, is obviously enormous. I mean, over, over the weekend, um, there, was, there was more um, muscle-flexing or grandstanding from Putin mm-hmm. again, where he said that he'd moved the, the, the nuclear defence systems in Russia to their highest level of alert. Um, now, commentators and, and, and uh, experts that I've seen commenting on this are saying that that in no way suggests that they're moving to suggest they're going to use nuclear weaponry, but it's that kind of posturing that's particularly concerning. It also seems that Belarus is now perhaps going to get directly involved in this conflict. It's been a staging post for, for the invasion uh, uh, of Ukraine. Um, I'm reading suggestions this morning that their armed forces may, may now join to support the, the, the Russian invasion. Russia, by all reports, is about two-thirds of the um, of the uh, um, soldiers and, and military that are the mass on, on Ukraine's border already committed. So that suggests, obviously, there's, there's one third still waiting over the border to come in as well. So the, the mm. level of the onslaught may well increase, uh, or will certainly increase in yeah. days to come. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, I mean, there's a, a lot of talk of uh, the invasion not being as successful as perhaps Putin or the Kremlin might have expected or hoped uh, for that matter. But I, I think they're intent on winning. Uh, and if it means more firepower. There will be more firepower and it seems regardless of what form that uh, assault takes on Ukraine and it seems that it's inevitable uh, that uh, Russia is going to occupy uh, Ukraine and that a lot of blood will be shed. Is that bloodshed necessary if that uh, is uh, correct uh, to say? Well, I mean, none of this was necessary. None of this was legal. Uh, um, everything that's happening here is a grave breach of international law. That's very, very clear. Russian is 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 egregiously violating uh, international law, a whole range of bodies of international law, humanitarian law, uh, customary uh, international law, etc. Um, you know, it's it's invaded a sovereign state, a, 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 a neighbouring state. It's committing um, uh, breaches of international humanitarian law. It's 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 carrying out acts that could constitute war crimes right now. So the critical piece here is, of course, that the the, the international community steps up and takes every possible action um, to to ensure that uh, um, the impact of this on the civilian population of Ukraine is is minimised. But also, there has to be accountability here. And um, it's really really welcome indeed that the UN Security Council which was unable to pass a resolution because we have the ludicrous situation of Russia um, chairing mm-hmm. the Security mm-hmm. Council at the moment and being able to veto a resolution mm-hmm. that would, content, would have condemned its aggression, mm-hmm. but it was not able to prevent now a resolution going to the UN General Assembly. So uh, and in- interesting, it didn't get the, the support of any other country, Ch- country China in particular, uh, very interesting, uh, abstaining in, in uh, the vote, uh, which sort of leaves... As did India, yeah. I yeah. mean, a number of countries... Mm-hmm. A, a number of, of countries did indeed abstain. But, I mean, the international community is is, is mobilising in ways that we, we certainly haven't seen in the context of other conflicts in other parts of the world, mm. which is maybe a discussion for another day. Um, and, and Russia's action is being, is being met by um, uh, incredibly strident reaction on the part of the international community now, short of, uh, obviously, armed, in, armed intervention. But that, that needs to continue. But mm. also, Russia, it needs to be made really, really clear to Russia that it will be held to account. OK, what are your thoughts uh, on armed intervention, uh, that uh, troops would be on the ground? That's not, a, unfortunately, as a human rights organisation, that's not a, a call for us to make. What's right. really, really clear is that the civilian population uh, must be protected from 
these these kinds of war crimes and human rights violations. Critical to that is ensuring that neighbouring countries and that the EU and the international community live up to their obligations to grant safe passage and then protection to people who need it. And as I said at the beginning of all of this, that means resourcing countries in the neighbourhood of Ukraine to be able to receive uh, um, refugees as they arrive in those countries, but then to make sure that there is a, a relocation and wherever that's necessary and possible and for people who are fleeing the conflict to other countries. I mean, we, we cannot, as I said at the beginning, um, repeat the uh, catastrophic, appalling moral failure, failures of the EU in response to these kind of conflicts in other parts, parts of the world and simply leave states uh, um, um, who border the regions where conflict is happening to manage the inevitable refugee flows that we will, that, that we will see. I mean, when we t- talk about numbers here, mm. there, there are about 1.45 million people already internally displaced uh, in Ukraine as a result of the 2014-2015 war. We've already now seen 470,000 or so uh, people cross over from Ukraine in the last five days. Those numbers are going to increase. Yeah. And it's really clear that the resources that are needed to receive those people, to guarantee them safely, to treat them humanely, are not currently in place. And that needs to happen urgently. The the goodwill of the people of Poland alone is not enough um, to respond to this crisis. There Mm. needs to be much greater action. Mm. Well, it's only begun. Day five, uh, and it could run for years yet. Colm, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Colm O'Gorman is uh, the Executive uh, Director of Amnesty International Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. People are fleeing in their droves, hundreds of uh, thousands of people trying uh, to leave Ukraine, many of them uh, through Lviv and on to Poland. And we can go to Lviv where Volodymyr Kuzik is on the line. Good morning to you, Volodymyr, and thank you for joining us on uh, the programme here on LMFM, which you're very familiar with, and indeed many people listening to us very familiar with you. I think you were living in Dundalk for about 19 years or so. Yes, that's correct. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you and how is life in Ukraine at the moment? Uh, the life in Ukraine is not really good uh, because everybody tries to survive. Uh, a lot of queues to the petrol station, uh, buying plenty of foods. Uh, like uh, We all need serious support and we'd be proud if... Uh, uh, Ireland is going to be provide something and help Ukrainian people. Here in the west of Ukraine, this is where I am from originally. It's a town called Zhokwa, Lviv region. It's a small town. It's a population nearly like Dundok, but everybody is afraid. Like the shutters, it's closed. Plenty of shops, it's closed. It's seriously bad. Mm. And uh, a lot of young lads, uh, they are dying for nothing. Yeah. And it's very scared. People are afraid to go in the street and uh, no money in the banks, uh, serious queues. Oh, it's terrible. And people want to fight. People want to fight the Russians, oh, even though yeah. you're talking about the might of the Russian army. Uh, yeah, well, uh, people seriously want to find even the eldest age people. They say, in, uh, like in the street, we're going to use sticks and everything to fight against the Russians. Yeah, we see on the and news people uh, building or making Molotov cocktails. Yes, that's correct. Molotov cocktails. And uh, it's a lot of people putting in through the Internet, Facebook, all the different uh, communications, what is uh, in the internet. But it's very dangerous as well. 
it's too many infections coming through the phones, and the phones is blocked. People can even communicate uh, to the different uh, people abroad and Europe, and uh, everybody's actually looking for the support, seriously looking for the support. Mm. Even clothes, uh, clothes, uh, uh, boots, helmets, everything what we really needed. Like, uh, uh, we have checkpoints every five kilometers in uh, different roads. And also for a lot of uh, young people uh, patrolling every night towns and everything. Plus, as well, uh, the no lights in the house completely. And also, as well, uh, from uh, <clears throat> what you call it, uh, from 9 uh, p.m. The curfew, yes. Nobody allowed to go outside at all. Mm. Well, that is war. Do you fear that you're looking uh, into the prospect of years of war? Yes, that's correct. And you... I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Vladimir, I should explain to our listeners there is a a slight delay on uh, the line and uh, apologies uh, for how we end up talking over each other because of that delay. But you have a a young 19-year-old son and you'd be concerned about him uh, joining the army. Yes, that's correct. I am very badly concerned and uh, he doesn't listen, you know. He doesn't even listen. His mom, Natalie... Uh, she lives in Dundalk, and I have uh, two more boys, uh, it's, uh, Michael and Daniel. And, you know, so they, they're afraid. They all pray uh, for our family, and they're all Ukrainians, you know. So, I mean, like, I mean, I delighted, uh, like, I mean, we have so many support from different countries, so many Ukrainians uh, everywhere in the world, you know, and they are talking, and they... They go outside in the street and they're saying, well, they're going to help. But a lot of people, it's a serious queue now because we live in a very close by border, Polish mm. border. It's only 25 kilometers. And it's a queue nearly for 15 kilometers. That's to cross the, the, the to Polish border. Try to cross. Yes, correct. Mm. Try to cross the border. And we're seeing reports uh, as well of families splitting up at uh, the border where the women and the children are are crossing into Poland and the men are staying behind because there's a a ban, obviously, uh, on men leaving the country so that they're available to fight. Yeah, that's correct. Men is not allowed to leave the country at all. Do Do you think that you might have to fight? Would you be willing to fight for your country? Oh, yeah, of course. I definitely like uh, like you. I'm very well trained and everything. You know that's uh, from the uh, when I was eight uh, years of age. Uh, well, I mean, I was using the weapons all the time. Like, I mean, it's like so. It's a good experience, and I'm training very well, and I'm training my friends and everything. Mm. I take it that there's. Ukrainian nationals who are flying in from every corner of uh, the world to fight the Russians. Uh, there's uh, certainly quite a, a few people going back home from Ireland to, to fight the war. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, well, I mean, I like, I mean, I have uh, so many text messages through the messenger, uh, Viber, and uh, even the phone calls, you know, from people who knows me because it's so many people knows me in Ireland uh, through my work. 
you know, so uh, I delighted that, you know, like everybody wants to help and they, even they want work to say, like we praying for you and that's en- enough. So that's mean uh, like people have respect and everything for Ukrainians. So um, there's a, a package of aid coming from Europe, which will include weapons. Would you like to see European troops arrive in Ukraine to give that type of support? Yes, please, if that's possible. Of course, the world leaders are afraid of getting involved militarily because of Putin's statements on nuclear weapons and that he will use nuclear weapons if uh, Europe and the United States gets involved. Yeah, I know that that's the problem is because he have a serious power, uh, like you say, nuclear weapons. He actually he actually took the Chernobyl now in Ukraine, you know, so he has serious power. We understand that seriously because nuclear weapons, so that's going to take uh, all Europe in one day easily. What, what do people say about Vladimir Putin in Ukraine? What they saying? They saying seriously bad things about him, and they really, and they really right to be saying like that. Hey, they calling him. He is a prick. Sorry to using that word. He is a pig, and everybody wants him to die. That's all. And everybody is afraid that he's going to kill uh, so many young young men uh, in particular, but so many others, because we've been hearing about the indiscriminate uh, attacks and cluster munitions at at the moment and how uh, they're ending up uh, attacking schools and killing children and so forth. Yeah, that's correct. And he's killing small children, even the new young born children. And they like mean the hospital was attacks and everything. So that's seriously, seriously situation in the moment. Mm. And uh, that's why everybody tried to run and everybody tried to help. Like we communicate all the time, like through the Facebook and different, uh, like I said, communication through the Internet and like try to deliver the food and everything, you know, to the people who stay in the roads and patrol the roads and uh, all the checkpoints uh, like we all the time changing hours and changing clothes, uh, getting food and everything, you know, so. Mm. Dreadful times, there's no doubt. Uh, And you'll continue to uh, hope against hope that some resolution uh, may be found, uh, but it it seems as though Putin is uh, determined and he's going to plough ahead. Well, look, uh, they try to, like, uh, find a, a solution for that. But, well, I mean, there'd be no solution. He doesn't listen anyone. Because he knows he has the power and the money. Like, even the Europe, they try to cut all the things, uh, what the, the business and everything try to close for mm-hmm. him. But that's not going to stop him. He, that's, like... He organized that for a long, long time. Mm. Since 2014, really. And Mm. and I tell you something. Ukraine, for him, just opened the door to the Europe. Mm. Yeah. 
And I suppose that is the fear or the question uh, which causes a lot of fear. Where or when may this end? Vladimir, stay safe and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I know there's a, a lot of people in Dundalk who'll be very happy to hear you this morning. Uh, a lot of your uh, friends and uh, family uh, because you lived there for 19 years. Uh, and uh, thank you for taking our call this morning. That's uh, Vladimir Kuzik. I uh, would be very delighted and all my friends, all people in around Ukraine what you're going to help and support, even the praying, the church, mm. and everything, that's going to be fantastic for us. Okay, well... And the, and the finger cross, it's everything, is going to be very shortly over. But nobody believes that. No, I, I think nobody is expecting it to end anytime soon. Vladimir, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, the Irish government has committed to €9 million Euro to that European package, about 1.9% of uh, what Europe will deliver, uh, which will give assistance uh, to the Ukraine in many ways, and many lethal weapons will make their way from the European Union to Ukraine as a result of uh, that package. Uh, there is a question over... Ireland's neutrality, I think it's fair to say, if Ireland is a donor to a package that is delivering lethal weapons. The Irish government says that the Irish money will not be spent on lethal weapons uh, and will be used to purchase other forms of aid which will make up that package uh, when it gets to Ukraine. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, I'm sure if you're on a hospital waiting list, you're not the only one on that list. I've met and I've spoken with a lot of patients and a lot of families and one of the main issues that they raise with me time and time again is the amount of time that they're waiting for care. Uh, It could be boys and girls waiting for spinal surgery, for scoliosis, for spina bifida. It could be Uh, someone in their 60s or 70s who's waiting for a hip operation or a knee operation. Uh, It could be people right across the country, people waiting for cataracts operations, for uh, ENT surgery, just, just to see a consultant. And the wait causes um, huge anxiety. A lot of the time patients are waiting in, in, uh, in a lot of pain and a lot of time while they're waiting, they're getting sicker or their condition is deteriorating. In Ireland today, too many people are waiting too long for health care. It's a dreadful situation, but the Minister has a plan. The 2022 Waiting List Action Plan, uh, which Stephen Donnelly was launching there on Friday, has 45 actions in it and it will be funded to the tune of €350 million. Stephen McMahon of the Irish Patients Association is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed, uh, as always, for joining us. All, All of this is very laudable and it certainly is aspirational and it's going to focus in particular on five inpatient day case, 15 inpatient day case uh, procedures in in particular to bring down waiting lists. Uh, It's not the first time, though, as you've been saying, uh, that ministers have had this sort of ambition. It's not. And um, the Irish Patients Association has been saying to Minister Donnelly the impact on patients, their lives and the risks associated with them being on uh, waiting lists for so long. 
and it's not only him, him but also his predecessors. So we're pleased to see that there's now an official recognition about the dangers to patients uh, for the fact of actually waiting such a long time, in many cases, um, you know, more than two, three years in some cases. So, you know, we do welcome this, Michael, that uh, uh, that, that, that this um, initiative has been launched, but it's not without time. I mean, we have had uh, plans in the past in 2017 and 2018, 19, and now we have another one uh, launched last week that incidentally said that over the last five years, there's been an increase of 20% in the waiting list. Uh, and that's despite all of the other previous initiatives that were launched to uh, reduce them. All right. And uh, many people will testify themselves about how long they've had to wait for a hip replacement or a, a knee replacement or how uh, they decided not to wait any longer for a, a cataract to be removed and gone north of uh, the border to get the job done, which has been pretty successful. But one of the problems we have here uh, is that there's not uh, enough consultants, there's not uh, enough staff. Is that true and how can that be addressed? Well, it is. I mean, there are a number of challenges uh, to the success of this particular plan. And let's be honest, it is a bold plan. I mean, you know, 350 million is nothing to be, uh, you know, snuffed at in so far as that um, they have targeted um, numbers that they're trying to achieve with that investment. But you are right, there are some serious um, issues. I mean, there's some areas in the system can be quite dysfunctional. Um, we have staffing problems not only in the hospitals but also out in the community with a shortening number of uh, family doctors due to retirement and one thing and another. But again, on the other side of that is uh, an important point that um, you know, I think what, what surprises a lot of people is that we've allowed our healthcare system in hospitals to be really basically run as a nine to five operation five days a week. I mean, we can see around the Christmas period, you know, that there's effectively nothing happens for about a week or so uh, during the Christmas period. So we have the resources of the theatres and the equipment and so on, uh, but it's maybe getting the logistics about utilising that in a better way, uh, like you would with aircraft or, or, or trains and planes and automobiles and so on. So uh, the good news, though, I'd like to just quick make a quick point for your listeners because, you know, people are probably listening, well, am I going to get something quicker? I mean, one of the... Um one of the uh, areas that they're talking about that anybody that's waiting more than six months um, that they will for focused um, uh, treatments such as cataracts, uh, hip replacements, knee replacements, uh, varicose veins, angiograms, which is one for cardiology. I, mm. I, you know, I, I can't understand why so many people are waiting so long for that. Um, then you also have dental work uh, and then um, uh, abdominal and hysterectomies. So there's quite a number of um, specialties there that if any of your listeners are waiting for that and waiting more than six months, they should be getting onto the um, onto the hospital whose list they're on, or, or maybe um, if they're not getting much answer there, to get onto their GPs because if this is there please use it because um, we know what it's like for families who have been waiting so long to get an operation. We also know about the terrible situation of having waited and been given your appointment for an operation and going into the hospital and then finding out that it's cancelled after yeah. making very complicated arrangements to look after somebody. You know, it's, mm. it's really awful. And these are life-changing operations. People get up and walk after hip replacement and they can see after a cataract and so on. But I take there's a lot of people who would identify with the last thing that you said about operations being cancelled or not 
uh, being scheduled because of COVID and uh, there's a lot of pent up demand in uh, healthcare as a, oh. a result of COVID and uh, that'll feed into these figures. They'll become worse before they get better. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, the Irish Patients Association um, produced analysis last year. I think it was March or April of last year where we looked at the first 12 months of the impact on emergency departments uh, during the first 12 months of COVID. And we identified that there was over 200,000 less attendances at the EDs and also 30,000 less admissions. Now, those people haven't disappeared. Mm. But the thing is, the concern is that, you know, um, that whatever was ailing them at that stage, that certainly the numbers are so large that we know that there are people out there. And I've heard recently, you know, family doctors and, and, and others um, out in the media uh, voicing such concerns that, you know, for these people to reconnect with the system and not just uh, forget about it until they get into a more critical situation. So even if you said 10% of all of those you know, and we remember the way we used to look at percentages during COVID. Mm. You know, if 10 or 15 percent of those people have serious conditions, that's 15,000, you know. And mm. um, so we have to reconnect with that. And that was only in the first year. We haven't counted in the second year there. Yeah. And you take into account the cancer figures, uh, cancer surgery down 20 percent. Uh, and that's not because there's fewer people who have cancer. It's because fewer people have been diagnosed uh, or in the process uh, of waiting for operations because of the delays uh, that uh, they faced in the system because of COVID. So there's a... Correct. I think really, though, I mean, you know, just looking at this initiative, I mean, it is to be welcomed Mm. and there are serious challenges there. And we want to see this succeed. You know, we want to see a 100% performance that we can say, you know, that this minister has probably achieved something that none of his predecessors have have achieved in in such a short time. A good plan, but the proof in the pudding. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it can be. But again, on the task force that he set up, which is set up between the Department of Health and the HSC, there's no patient's voice there to, you know, see what's actually going on behind the scenes and trying to ensure that there are no roadblocks or barriers to the, the reforms that are necessary there uh, that, that, you know, that might put patients in jeopardy uh, because of you know, bureaucratic or some other processes there. We want to see this succeed. And again, one final thing is we're a little bit concerned about is that they have a target in there to reduce the waiting that they call it validation by about 90,000. In other words, identify 90,000 people that no longer need to be, um, need the, the, the whatever it was that they were waiting for. And, you know, we're just a bit wary of mm-hmm. actually setting a target uh, to remove people rather than actually coming up with a number that you've removed because you've gone through uh, a due process. Okay. we leave there for the moment. Thank you very much for joining us. Stephen Thank McMahon is a spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, it's a very big day for the country with uh, the end of nearly all of the COVID restrictions at this stage. Let's speak uh, to Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Meath, Fergus O'Dowd, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. No need to wear face masks anymore. Uh, we never thought we'd see this day, did we? We never did. It's no longer mandatory. Uh, that means nobody can require you to wear one. Uh, but clearly, uh, we never thought we'd see this day, and thank God it, it has happened. And please God, it will never return. So the most important thing for everybody is, notwithstanding that you don't have to wear your mask, is to make sure that that you keep safe. 
and that you don't take any risks, particularly if you're older, if you're immunocompromised, uh, you know, if you're a carer for somebody who who is immunocompromised and so on. You, we just have to be careful. But it is looking out and looking forward, hopefully, to a future you know, that we can all have a much happier and more fulfilling life. Okay. Um, what have you been hearing from people about this? Uh, because there's mixed feelings, obviously. There are mixed feelings, Michael. You're quite right. I think everybody's happy uh, that obviously the, the the actual incidence of COVID is going down, and the fact uh, you know the, the the result of PCR tests have shown a huge decrease, and antigen testing as well. So we're going the right way. But there are still people in hospital. There are still people dying from COVID. Uh, you know, like last week, there were 14 outbreaks in nursing homes and there was 15 outbreaks in, in acute hospitals. So, uh, you know, it's still, it's, st- it's still a serious risk to people who may not have any vaccination mm-hmm. at all. But for those who have and who are fully vaccinated, it's a much safer place. And what the department and the Minister for Health and the medical officer, they're moving away from mandatory requirements, you know, to health advice, our own personal judgment, and pr- still protect ourselves in places that are, you know, we're likely to get a, an infection. Mm, and I suppose it's understandable as well that people are concerned or uh, worried or fearful, uh, as uh, some people obviously are, and uh, trade unions uh, and others have been saying it's a step too far too soon. And I accept their concerns, and I appreciate fully their worries. Uh, now, while if you're on, if you're in a taxi or in public transport, train or bus, you're not required to wear the mask. That is allowed. They can't, you cannot be required. And if you don't wear the mask, there are no penalties. But the recommendation is that you should. Mm. So I think common sense prevails. And if you know, it depends on whether you're on crowded transport or not. You know, I think the key thing is keeping windows open on public transport and keeping your social distance if you can, if it's not crowded, is is obviously fine. Um, again, it's up to each individual. And obviously, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, the risk is much less to you than it is to somebody who isn't fully vaccinated. Mm. So, so it's just it's really it's the unknown though the isn't it I think that uh, upsets people uh, because the, uh, the the risk of getting uh, COVID uh, is probably not much less because there's a lot of it about it it's very transmissible uh, the risk to serious illness uh, is far less because it it, especially yep. if, if you've been boosted and the risk of death or, or ICU care uh, is really reduced to practically at nothing if you've been fully vaccinated, boosted uh, and so on. But you don't know if... Uh, you don't know. Nobody yeah. knows. And yeah. then we don't know that the next person uh, that gets COVID that it's not going to be a new, uh, you know, a new strain. Yeah. We don't know that. So therefore, I think common sense should prevail. But it's a much happier... A much more, of course, yeah. You know, a much mm. more relaxed system. But it's, it's. Look, come here. Everybody has to look after themselves. And yeah. As I said earlier, immunocompromised older people and people who have no vaccination at all, they're still particularly at, at, at risk. Mm. Is this what we need to do, though, to bring about some sort of normality for young people? Well, I think young people have been fantastic. And indeed, their whole lives have been disrupted, whether you're a teenager or a young child at school. And clearly, you know, they've borne the burden of mask wearing in their active young, younger lives uh, very well. And I think you know, that we can be very proud that, that they did that. Um, and obviously, 
you know, the return to a normal life, you know, to mix with your friends, to sit in your classroom that you don't, you're not required to sit in the pod, you know, to run around the playground and have, you know, a full mm. physical run and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, have the games that you always had. Um, mm. no, that's This is a return to normality. Mm. For um, boys and girls to meet boys and girls or Absolutely, whatever. Well, that's hugely yep. important. Mm. Our social life has been mm. completely and utterly changed, absolutely changed. And, mm. you know, it's, 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 it's very, very difficult for young people. Um, I'm sure they'll, they, they will literally embrace this change that's coming now, hopefully. Mm. Yeah. No they will. Um, so I think, I think, you know, it looks, it augurs well. But we don't know for sure that there won't be something else down the road. And I understand that the flu is spreading a bit now. I just noticed in the paper this morning. So if you're in a crowded, enclosed area, you know, I think wearing a mask would make sense. And that's certainly what I would do. I hope anyway. Well, there's a a lot of uh, reasons uh, for wearing masks and keeping your distance or having perspex installed in places uh, because it's not just COVID. I mean, who's had a cold in the last couple of years? Uh, And if you've had a cold, you've run the risk of catching COVID and vice versa. Uh, Whether it's a cold or a flu or the winter vomiting bug, uh, these things uh, that go around in the air. uh, And I think a lot of people will choose to continue to wear masks for those reasons. They will, and I know that in certain nationalities, and it's not a pejorative mm. use of the word I'm using here, is that that some some countries they wear masks all the time, particularly in winter. And I think a lot more people, like thankfully, I haven't had a cold for a long time, now, and I know lots of other people like me are lucky like that. Mm. Uh, and I think I would put that down to you know to, you know to, to mask wearing particularly. So. You know, mask wearing does does protect you from other bugs. There's no doubt about that. But clearly, you know, you, you measure the risk and, and you act accordingly. But I think it's it's you know people. You know, I mean, it's not so long ago since people had to cocoon at home. You couldn't leave your house for you know for eight weeks there at one stage if you're over a certain age. And you know, it transformed and it changed life. And as I said, many people have suffered greatly. Many people passed away and died and there's a huge there's a huge loss in those families because obviously they couldn't be with their loved one as they passed away. Mm. And, you know, there's a huge, you know, obviously deep deep upset with that and it will you know, that they couldn't say goodbye to the mum and dad or brother and sister and that they couldn't visit them and even people who were in nursing homes couldn't really have visitors for, for two years. And the average lifespan in a nursing home is not that long, as we know. And, you know, you're declining years and you're you're behind the window and, you, you know, you can't yeah. communicate. It's very, very sad. And that's been an awful yeah. price that people had to pay. So, thankfully, that is over. Mm. And, you know, and there'll be a much more normal visiting and, you know, relaxation of all, of all regulations. Okay. Do you think uh, that, that your party has suffered politically because of uh, that? Uh, and, of course, I'm referring uh, to the Sunday Business Post poll yesterday sure. for the Gale, the worst score in 17 years at 20 percent uh that's uh the red sea poll uh, and yep. then um you've uh, the irish examiner today reporting on a survey of finnegale tds 35 out of the 55 tds responded i'm not sure if you were one of them or if you want to tell us you were one of them uh but their uh, position Michael, um i think what i what i'm happy to say yeah. is that i accept absolutely the public are very frustrated at the moment and obviously that frustration is going to deepen because of the war, obviously, in, in Russia. Yeah. 
and the Ukraine and obviously energy prices mm. are, are looking very serious now. I think I I had to pay one eighty five for for a litre of petrol there yeah, yeah. yesterday, and that's and, and I could we, well go over two we, euros. So we could be looking at blackouts. Uh, I don't blame them. Yeah, you might be happy to pay one eighty five if you could get petrol. Like it could get like well, that. I mean, yeah. yeah mm. Well, I don't. Think, I I think the problem, the threat I see also is the question of Russia if they were to cut off the gas supply mm. to Europe. Yeah. it would have a huge impact, and I mean the currency markets are in turmoil. You mm. know, so so like people's pensions are going to be affected because obviously if the market is dropping then your income is not going to be yeah. going yeah. up so there's, there's huge so people are angry they're upset of course I'm yeah. listening to them that's yeah. my job yeah. my job is yeah. to represent and their views there's darker days ahead so. I, I mean I think that's the point I was going to ask you about that Irish examiner survey of the TDs though uh, sure. and uh, they're placing Simon Harris or Helen McEntee uh, in uh, prime positions uh, to take on uh, the leadership of your party any thoughts on that? Yep, absolutely. There is no vacancy and there isn't going to be a vacancy. Uh, so, uh, I mean... You think, you'd think think i know better at this stage than ask you that, wouldn't you? <laughs> the papers will always print, Michael. Yeah. And you mm. rightly will ask the hard questions as always. It was easily Leo, answered. <laughs> Leo would be the Taoiseach yeah. again mm. in December and uh, obviously every party, particularly in government, goes through a difficult time, and they should because situations uh, are chronic for lots of people. I was speaking to a lot of people about the energy and about mm-hmm. the cost of heating your home and even lighting your fire now. So it is a huge issue. Mm. It is a huge issue, Absolutely. and you know, but, you know, obviously, we, we we have managed the economy, but this is about managing people's lives and making sure that they that they can live in this very increasingly difficult world. And my job is to represent the people of this county and make their views known clearly, unambiguously, Michael. And I do, and I will hopefully continue to do that. And hopefully our party will recover. It's it's a very difficult job to be in government right now. Somebody has to do it. Obviously, people will criticise us, but we have to continue on with the work that we're doing. And I think we have managed in this issue, in terms of COVID, the people have managed to protect yeah. themselves and, and uh, the government has managed you know to help people to do that mm-hmm. and I, 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 I welcome that but there are lots of other issues like unresolved the question of target nursing home is a huge issue for me and for people in this county mm-hmm. and you know we, 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 we need huge changes in care of older people we need to have proper home care for people rather than uh, I believe nursing home care. Mm. Uh, you know, we need to we, we need to look after a lot of our older people, our sick people, in a better way, and that's yeah. that's what I'll be arguing okay. uh, at my party meeting. Well, uh, a significant day today uh, in uh, the step forward. Uh, and uh, away from the emergency uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, as you said yourself uh, people will have mixed feelings some people will continue to wear masks others won't uh, and uh, some people uh, will follow uh, the new guidelines uh, on isolating and others will uh, think uh, that they're too lenient uh, but uh, it's all on the health advice from NEFIDA as you mentioned earlier on we leave it there for the moment and thank, thank you, you indeed for thank joining us here on the programme uh, this morning Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath Fergus O'Dowd Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM, LMFM.
the cost of heating your home is ridiculous and undoubtedly it's going to get a lot more expensive because of the war but if you're going to retrofit your home uh, do one of uh, these deep retrofits Uh, Well, there's a chance that you'll be using far less fuel and it won't be that expensive to heat your home. But what if your landlord decides to spend €25,000 and get a grant of €25,000 and spend €50,000 on improving uh, the energy rating of your home? What happens then? Is there a chance that you'll be evicted? or evicted and have to pay higher rent, as the case may be, if you're allowed back into the house. The basis on which this is being um, predicated is on a homeowner. Mm. Um, it's assuming that, that, that almost every household is an owner-occupier. Mm. And, you know, the social housing is covered off in the sense that there are schemes for social housing, but the, um, the private rented sectors where none of these questions are being answered mm. and, and government isn't providing these, these, these answers. And therefore, it needs some kind of working group. It needs a dedicated yeah. working group to look at um, the issues that you raised in terms of people losing their tenancies as mm. a result of the renovations or increases in rents as a result of the renovations being so substantial. Now, that's John Mark McCafferty, who's uh, the chief executive of Threshold. He was uh, speaking to me on Friday's programme and responding to uh, questions uh, that had been put to the chairperson of the RTB on Thursday at the Public Accounts Committee by local Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster. Uh, A very good morning to you, Imelda Munster, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. It it seems clear from what Tom Dunn said to you and what John Mark McCafferty said on the programme on Friday, there is a very real risk for tenants in all of this. Uh, and John Mark McCarthy of Threshold asking that a, a working group would be set up to look at it. Yes, I think there's the possibility that it could become uh, quite a big problem uh, for tenants right across the state. Um, some landlords can or could use the retrofitting to get a tenant out. And um, the fact that, particularly when you talk about rent pressure zones, if you carry out um, refurbishment, and particularly in relation to the BER rating, um, it will exempt you from the, the restrictions of the rent pressure zone, so therefore you can increase the rent. So say, for example, a landlord decided to go for the retrofitting scheme and he said to the tenant, look, you need to move out. Um, when the work is done, by law, he, can, he has to give you know, the tenant the option of moving back in but he could say, say the tenant was paying 1500 mm. prior to the refurbishment. Um, he could then put the rent up to 2000 <clears throat> and obviously the tenant's not going to be able to afford that. So it's a real problem. And I listened to the interview um, on Friday and that gentleman was calling for a working group, but I've also written to the minister um, specifically around what protections for tenants of private landlords in relation to this this scheme. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, at the minute... It's an unintended consequence, is it? It, it appears to be that it's, it's geared for homeowners, but um, without taking into account, you know, t- tenants right across the state mm. renting from private landlords. And as we know, um, the rental market is totally out of control here and renters are being fleeced. So the minister, yeah. I mean, he needs to afford them every single protection and if this is going to create more problems for renters then he has to act he has to do something 
And what about a deep retrofit? Uh, this job, if you like, that would cost €50,000. There's a lot of jobs involved in how that money would be spent. Uh, would it be such a, a big job that you wouldn't really be able to live in the house? Would people have to move out? Well, I don't know. I've, I Actually, when I was thinking about it myself, I don't know anyone who was getting um, any sort of retrofitting in their home actually moved out because of it. I know people that had got heat pumps in and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And they were in the house when the work was done. But the fear is that landlords, some landlords, could use the fact that they get, because they're allowed to do that, you're allowed, um, a landlord can end a tenancy Mm. if they're carrying out refurbishment and um, particularly in relation to to if they're increasing their building energy rating. Um, So it's not that it would be necessary. All they have to do actually, in fact, is say on health and safety grounds Mm. that they want the tenant to move out. And I mean, where does the tenant go in the first instance? Well, it would be an eviction, would it? Well, it would primarily, like, really. Mm. Um, but the other thing is, I was looking at some websites that are advertising homes for sale, and they're actually using it as a selling point. They're saying uh, that further potential to secure full market rent levels, um, subject to securing rent pressure zone exemption mm. through vacancies and refurbishment. So they're on to it. Like. Mm. And the fear there is that um, if the minister doesn't do something to protect tenants, then that you're going to have certainly some landlords, maybe okay. more than we, you know, so yeah, but, it's trying but, to get them to act to prevent it happening. Yeah. Um, I just wonder what would happen uh, if that was the case. Uh, would that mean then that they wouldn't upgrade the homes? They wouldn't do this work? Well, you see, as I said earlier, a lot of that work can be done with people living in the house. But it costs 50,000 you know, euro. I mean, if you're going to spend 50,000 euro, um, surely you should be able to put the rent up, should you not? Well, I, no, not if it's in a rent pressure zone. The whole idea is because the rent rental market's totally out of control. Okay, that's but that, that's, that's my zone. point then. Okay, so if you can't put up the rent, you're not going to spend mm. 50,000, are you? Well, it's your property, isn't it? So if your property can gain over, you know, long term from availing of the grants, and you can afford to do it, mm. then you'll do it because the property's yours, still yours at the end of the day. Mm. So you have no reason not to do it if you want to improve, particularly say your the uh, the building energy ratings. You'll do it while the grant is there, mm. um, and you can afford to do it. So yeah, well, the grant will cover half of it. It's the other twenty-five thousand, mm. I suppose. Oh, it's, it's a substantial amount, but I suppose mm. there'll be plenty a landlord in this. Uh, state that would be probably be in a better position than most, maybe to avail of the larger grant, you know, the the larger works, yeah. uh, given the size of the grant, more so than ordinary people. Yeah, but that will pay know. for half. Uh, I mean, that will pay mm. 25,000. The landlord will have to come up with 25,000. Uh, yeah. And if they had to borrow that, uh, they'd be hoping that an increase in the rent would cover the borrowings, would they not? But possibly, but the whole idea is, I mean, the, the minister... You know, as I said, renters are being absolutely fleeced. And we hear every day of people, you know, that literally cannot afford the rent. They're scrimping and scraping every month to make Mm. it. And you hear of young people who are renting Mm. who will never be able to um, apply for a mortgage at their first time home Mm. because the rents are so high. And, you know, a government is there to try and protect people in that situation, Mm. a situation that they've created themselves. But if the landlord decided then that they couldn't afford to do that because they couldn't come up with the €25,000 without some Mm. way of 
uh, financing it, um, then uh, they'd be in a position in 2025 when they'd have to have that work done. And if they couldn't afford it at that stage, uh, they'd be left with no option but to sell the house, would they not? Well, I mean, they could do it in stages. You know, they could have certain retrofitting, the same as most people will be doing, um, that couldn't afford to go for the full deep retrofit. They'd be in no different position than most people just getting it done in dribs and drabs Mm. while the the grants are still there. But, I mean, the idea, the the reason I asked the question and and flagged it up Mm. was that the minister, um, that this could well become a problem for renters and there's enough on their plate, in all fairness. And if there's something that can be done to afford them protection, then it has to be done. Indeed, yeah. yeah. It sounds like it's a right L dilemma. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how. I mean, it could be just an oversight, but given the volume of people renting at the moment with the housing crisis, well, you know, um, it, it should have been something they looked at. But hopefully now that it's been flagged up, um, the RTB threshold, and I've written to myself, so hopefully maybe they'll um, take heed of it and, put in something, you know, that particularly landlords in rent pressure zones, Mm. they can avail of the grant, but they can't put up the rents any further than the the limit that's on it at the minute. But it just leaves so many renters vulnerable. I mean, as if they're not vulnerable enough as it is, you know, and that's the government's duty to, to protect people. And if this was an oversight, they need to look at ways. And as your speaker on... John Mark McCarthy had said, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, if he mm. has said that this could well be an issue and mm. that they need to set up a working group, then they need to do that. Okay. All right. Uh, another issue uh, that you're raising, uh, a big concern, uh, I think, is for medical card patients uh, trying to see a dentist locally. Yes. I mean, it's it's in dire straits at the minute. We really are at crisis point. You have, there's not one dentist available in Drogheda to accept medical card patients at the minute. Um, and you have, and I would have people in my constituency office almost every day. That's how bad it's got, Mike. You have medical card holders that would include people with cancer or kidney transplant patients or people with diabetes who can't access a dentist. And this has been going on for a year. It's, it's inhumane. It's literally inhumane. And I didn't never sensed any sense of urgency with the government. And I've raised it three or four times. Now, I know they've met with the Dental Association recently, but you can't have people that are in need of dental treatment not being able to access that treatment. And they need to get the scheme back up and running as soon as possible. It's urgent at this stage. I mean, I've lost count of the amount of people and they're getting so frustrated with it, you know, but okay, they're starting to look into it now, but it's been going on the guts of a year and there's more and more people and even my office, we did a ring round to a lot of dentists on top of the amount of people coming in. And just Friday evening, someone contacted me again and said, I've literally rang every dentist now that in Drogheda. There's no one taking patients with medical card. That's not sustainable. It's, it's wrong. Okay. You have people in pain, you have people that, that with illnesses that need regular dental treatment that can't access that they need to get their act together they really do okay dreadful situation thank you yeah, indeed uh, for, thank you uh, for joining us uh, this morning Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath and Melda Munster Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM, LMFM.
Now, UNICEF is a charity that is no stranger to war-torn areas working in 190 countries and territories around the world. Let's talk to Peter Power, who's the Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland. A very good morning to you, Peter. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. No stranger to war as an organisation, but I take it that the war that's erupted in Ukraine could be one of the greatest challenges for you and indeed other charities. Yes, uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, it's it's a huge crisis, there's no question about it. The figures that are uh, coming out from our sister agencies in the United Nations over the weekend are pretty stark. Uh, Estimate that maybe 18 18 million people uh, will need some form of humanitarian assistance, potentially 4 million people uh, crossing over the border uh, into neighbouring countries such as Romania, Hungary, Slovakia and Poland, obviously. And the latest uh, figures uh, we have are that uh, up to 7 million people inside in Ukraine could become internally uh, displaced. So this is, uh, is, this is a real crisis with, uh, with huge potential. And I was just reflecting this morning, interestingly, you know, UNICEF uh, was set up uh, just in the aftermath of the Second World War to deal uh, with the aftermath of war in Europe. And mm. we certainly didn't think that we would be uh, dealing with a, a humanitarian crisis in Europe uh, once again. Yeah, that should have been the end to centuries of war in Europe. I think that was the expectation. Right. There's a, a great sense of disbelief globally that this is happening uh, again. And uh, the Russians are indiscriminate, uh, quite obviously, in terms of how they're advancing and attacking the citizens of Ukraine. Already there have been child deaths. Yes, regrettably, there uh, some of the uh, uh, violence and conflict has been indiscriminate. And uh, what, what is of real concern uh, to UNICEF, Michael, is the uh, the uh, attacks on critical infrastructure, especially water and schools. Uh, water, especially in the in the eastern part in the Donbas region, where we have three offices, a lot of water infrastructure has been destroyed. And our experience, uh, unfortunately, tells us that when water infrastructure is damaged, uh, the humanitarian issues escalate exponentially. Uh, so we've been trucking water into the uh, eastern area. And secondly, of most concern to us is the fact that um, many children are al- already exhibiting. The, uh, the familiar signs, I'm afraid, of psychological trauma uh, caused by shelling and violence. Mm. Uh, we have 10 mobile units going from place to place around the country trying to provide what we call psychosocial care, that's psychological and social care to children. So that's what we're providing uh, in the short term. And then there's obviously the issue to the west on the border. We can talk about that later. Okay. well, I mean, that's in the short term, as you say, because uh, we're only five days into this war and uh, it could go on for years. Uh, And uh, when you uh, look at uh, the photographs uh, of how beautiful a a country it is, uh, many people will remember thinking the same of Syria and how that uh, was just totally destroyed because of war. And it looks as though that's a possibility in this case as well. It seems as though the Russians are intent on blowing the place up or doing whatever is necessary to take occupation of Ukraine. And that, of course, brings about this fear for 
people's lives uh, and uh, their well-being. And if this goes on and on, as it could very well do, uh, there will be those type of challenges. But also working in a region like that uh, for a charity, it becomes all the more difficult. uh, And therein lies the expertise, I suppose, of UNICEF. How do you manage to keep your members safe working on the ground? Well, uh, the, uh, we have 117 people in the country, Michael, and obviously we're deeply concerned uh, uh, for their safety. A lot of them uh, were pre-positioning humanitarian supplies on the eastern side, which is where we expected most of the violence originally, but obviously it has spread to the whole country now in a, in a very indiscriminate way. And you did mention Syria. And, uh, you know, I had the, the grave misfortune of spending time with UNICEF colleagues in both Homs and Aleppo, and I have seen the level of destruction that this type of conflict can bear down on a country. And I would dearly uh, not wish that for the people inside in Ukraine. Homs particularly was mm. utterly destroyed. Mm. Mm. So we, we, you know, we hope for the we hope for the best. Uh, we prepare for the worst. For the worst, mm. and. Uh, you mentioned expertise. I mean, that, that's what that's what our people do. What the the E and UNICEF is is emergency, and we we respond to emergencies no matter where they are in the world. That's where our expertise lies. We'll be putting in a surge force over the coming days to supplement our people on the ground and getting but people out and getting them settled. Then when they do get out, exactly. And that, that is where uh, outside of the, the those issues with children and damage to infrastructure, which I mentioned earlier on, the second element of the humanitarian response is the people on the move and and I again I regret to say that our, our, our experience over many years tells us that children who are on the move are very very vulnerable to all sorts of uh, problems health issues but also they they can fall prey to really unscrupulous and evil people who prey on these type of situations I hate to say this uh, who, 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 who work in these situations. So child protection and, and uh, our child protection specialists are on high alert for that sort of activity. And then secondary to that, for those people who are on the move over towards uh, Lviv and other crossing points into the West, the, uh, they, they're facing delays. Latest count is about 70 hours at Lviv. So they have to be provided, it's very cold there mm-hmm. over the last couple of days, so they have to be provided with water, with blankets. Uh, there's, there's women and children there, they need hygiene, they need sanitation and so forth. So that's uh, that's what we're, we're really are focusing okay. on at the moment. Just briefly, because I, I know you need to be elsewhere, have people been responding over the last few days? Uh, have you seen uh, an increase in donations? Because everybody is asking, what can we do? Yeah, we have seen we've seen an, an enormous. I have to say, uh, what we've come to expect from the Irish people enormous uh, support uh, for for our work. Hundreds of thousands of euro just spontaneously uh, coming from Irish people. It's 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 the, the solidarity of Irish people for for what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, people I think realise that this is an historic moment for us, and that uh, that we do need to show solidarity in in one way or the other. I think. You know, uh, governments around the world are really are stepping up and uh, definitely the support for UNICEF's work and our sister UN agencies uh, has been absolutely uh, 
It's been absolutely fantastic and, okay. and, and heartwarming to see, I have to say. Peter, thank you indeed uh, for joining us You're on welcome, the programme this morning. Much appreciated. That's Peter Power, who's uh, the Executive uh, Director of UNICEF Ireland. Now, you'd wonder what all this is about. Uh, where's the logic in any of it? Uh, before uh, we listen uh, to the clip I'm about to play for you, I should mention that the European Union has moved to ban Russia today and Sputnik Radio from broadcasting across Europe. Uh, but we'll hear a, a contr- contribution uh, from a journalist now to Sputnik Radio. Well, you'll remember that for the past month or so, U.S. officials were going around saying Russia is about to invade Ukraine. Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And Russian officials were like, no, we're not. What's going on here? Uh, they, they were perplexed as to what this was about. Um, well, now we know what it was about. Uh, it was about the fact that uh, the, you know, the U.S.-backed government in Kiev was planning to, you know, go on an offensive and just, you know, go and try to just shut down the Donetsk People's Republic and the Donetsk, uh, you know, People's Republic and the, uh, the Lugansk People's Republic. They were going to move in on them and try to just crush them. And the idea was to intimidate Russia and create a situation where Russia would feel they, they couldn't send their military in to protect them, uh, to kind of intimidate Russia, to make Russia on the defensive, have Russia have to move their troops away from the border. Um, and what happened was the opposite. Uh, they moved in on the Lugansk uh, People's Republic, on the Donetsk People's Republic, and Russia granted recognition to these countries. Uh, and then uh, Russia sent their military in at the request of the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic, and they sent their military in to protect them. And now they're moving their military into Ukraine uh, to make sure that the Ukrainian military stops bombarding these people. For eight years, the people of these two republics, the eastern region, have been facing shelling and bombing and a food blockade that's prevented them from getting food. People who speak the Russian language have been, you know, been arrested for that, have been getting tickets, and they have a ban on the language. And the people of the eastern regions who have been dying, 14,000 of them at least have died, uh, they have been suffering and they have been waiting. And that Minsk agreement was supposed to lead to a de-escalation of this and bringing them back into the government, integrating them back into the Ukrainian state. And that hasn't happened. And so after, after waiting for so long, for eight years, and after seeing that an, you know, an offensive was headed toward them after the United States whipped up hysteria about Russia for a month or so, Russia said, no, you don't. And Russia has moved in, and they are protecting the people of Donetsk and Lugansk, and they are trying to stop the killing that's been going on for eight years. And they are trying to demobilize that Ukrainian military that's got 125,000 Nazi soldiers in it, the Azov Battalion, uh, you know, this Nazi division of the army. They're trying to demobilize and break apart the Ukrainian military so it stops doing to the people of Donetsk and Lugansk what it's been doing for the last eight years. They're trying to secure the people of those regions. And since Ukraine is not going to bring them back into the government, uh, they're trying to help solidify the people's republics that they have just now recognized. Uh, this is not an invasion of Ukraine. This is not Russian aggression. It's quite the contrary. Russia is trying to end the killing. Russia is trying to stabilize the country. And they want to be in and out. That's the other thing. I mean, they've made clear they have no intention of occupying Ukraine, of, of anything like that. They want to be in and out. They want this to be over as quick as possible. This is a special operation uh, to protect the people of the eastern region. Mm, interesting, isn't it?
that's a, a journalist and a political analyst called Caleb Mopin who was uh, speaking uh, to Sputnik Radio and uh, I'd have to say uh, that, uh, uh, of course, uh, there's absolutely no truth in what you've just been hearing, but uh, that's Russian propaganda and interesting to listen to how this has been sold uh, through the Russian propaganda stations such as Radio Sputnik. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, parents of young children uh, may be interested in uh, this next item. If you have a car seat uh, for your child... Uh, you might think it's fitted correctly. If it is fitted correctly, uh, you're in the minority. The majority, uh, it seems, are not. Let's speak uh, to Ashling Sloyan, RSA Senior Road Safety Promotion Officer. A very good morning to you, Ashling, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Road Safety Authority has launched uh, a new code of practice, uh, but you've uh, been carrying out quite a, a number of checks yourselves in the RSA, and you've uh, discovered that 56% of the car seats that you checked were not fitted properly. That's right, Michael. Thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah, we've found that over half of the child car seats that we've checked are incorrectly fitted. And what we're trying to do is to change that, Michael. We want to work with retailers and with parents to make sure we get that number down and that parents get access to the right information to make good decisions about their car seats. Mm. Does that mean that the child was in danger? Um, it can, yes. So um, of the 56% that we um, found that were incorrectly fitted, 30% of them would have been classified as a major adjustment. So a major adjustment, for example, could be that the seat belt is just way too loose, that the, the car seat is almost ineffective in a crash, or that it's, it's, it's not fitted correctly. Like, you know, some of them are, are fitted with isofix or some are fitted with the seat belt. And sometimes that seatbelt can be going through all the wrong routes and, and therefore making it um, not going to work as it should in the event of a crash. So, unfortunately, you know, that can lead to serious injuries or even worse mm. um, that we don't want to think about. Right. And why is this happening? So what we found, Michael, is that um, a lot of the time, you know, parents mightn't be getting the, the right information to make those decisions about their car seats. So, what, we're, what we want to do is to work with retailers so that when the parents or guardians or whoever is going to buy a car seat for their child, that they're getting the information that they need. So some of that information is about the child's height, the child's weight, and also making sure that the car seat will work in the car that you're going to use it in. Mm. Uh, and that it's uh, at the right stage because some of uh, these uh, car seats break down over a period of time as the child gets bigger. Yes, exactly. So some of them, I think what you mean is that they, they you know, adjust as they go along. So mm. especially, um, you know, if you're um, adjusting the, the head restraint, adjusting the harness as the child grows. So it's something I would say, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, how often should I be checking it? Mm. You should be checking it every time you put your child into that car. Right. It's like when you or I put our seatbelt on getting into the car, we always make sure it's buckled in correctly and we, and we pull it tight. Mm. And that's what we want to make sure with the car seat. So even if it is an isofix fitting or if it's a seatbelt fitting, you still need to check. So you need to check the seatbelt. You need to check that all the green indicators are on if it's an isofix. But you also need to check the internal parts. So, uh, as I mentioned, the head restraint. So that, that head protector should be around the head area. 
and then that the harness is adjusted correctly. So you mm. don't want it pulling their shoulders down, that it should be um, adjusted to the child as they grow. Okay. Something for parents to think about uh, as well uh, and maybe to uh, check uh, the way the seats are, are fitted as they stand. Of course, wearing a seatbelt is very important, as you say. Uh, we always buckle in and make sure that it's pulled tight, or at least I do always, and why wouldn't you? And it seems that some people don't, uh, and uh, it can be very, very dangerous, as you've been discovering from your research. That's right. It's, it's shocking, actually, to, to think, but um, 27% of the fatalities that happened in 2021 that those people were not wearing a seatbelt and um, it begs belief you know that, yeah. that these are totally avoidable uh, you know even to say that if you wear your seatbelt you reduce your risk um, of serious injury or death by half just by that simple thing of wearing your seatbelt when you're driving in the car so it, you know it's just to try and remind people that this is a, it's a safety device it, you know it's not just something that is optional when you get into the car and before you turn the keys in the ignition you should be putting your seatbelt on buckle it in and pull it tight right you'd have to wonder if those people would actually be alive had they done exactly that maybe people listening to you this morning will take that on board Ashley. Thank yeah. you indeed uh, for joining us uh, nice to Thank talk to you very Thank much Ashling Sloyan road safety uh, Authority Senior Road Safety Promotion Officer. Now let's uh, hear some of your comments today. Debbie in Navin on the phone to us saying, am I the only one who's a little bit uncomfortable taking off my mask in public places? I use public transport to get around and I'll definitely be keeping the mask on when I'm on the bus and I'd be nervous if others didn't. COVID is still out there and I'm still concerned about catching the virus as I've managed to avoid it so far. Well done, Debbie, and thanks uh, for uh, the call and for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, Another call to the programme this morning from John in Navin who says it is troubling indeed to see what's happening in Ukraine. He's finding it hard to watch the news because he hates seeing poor innocent people In that situation, it's just heartbreaking. He warns, though, that there will be serious repercussions on a a number of fronts for the rest of the world. Many may not realise that Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe because of the amount of wheat it exports. And he fears there will be a shortage of flour for bread if this war continues. I think uh, there's a lot of reason to be concerned, uh, John. Uh, and not just uh, because of uh, the lives lost and uh, the bloodshed. This is going to have very serious consequences, uh, as you say. Gronia in, uh, in touch with us as well, and Gronia says, you have to admire the courage of the Ukrainians, ordinary men and women who are willing to put their lives on the line to protect their country. It's good to see the global condemnation of Putin, who has to be stopped because who knows what he might do next. It's very frightening to witness. Thanks, Gronia. I think the people of Ukraine are probably going to be massacred. Um, that's the way it appears with the might of the Russian army. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not sure uh, what way there is out of it. I don't think that there's any way that Putin is going to be stopped. That's the way it uh, appears. Margaret says, how much is Putin paying that stupid Sputnik broadcaster? What a load of BS. He needs to get into the real world. Thanks, Margaret. 
I thought it'd be interesting to listen to, and I hope it, it was. But wasn't it just incredible? And that stuff was going on all the time. I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, out of curiosity listening to Spudnik over the last few days, and it's unbelievable the spin that is being put on this. Uh, Kay says the Ukrainians should be so proud of themselves. I, I dread if this happened in Ireland. Can you imagine depending on the spoilt snowflakes here to fight? Paddy says, why do you assume that the government's actions in relation to grants for upgrading rental property may be a way to assist evictions uh, is an unintended consequence? (laughs) Okay, Paddy. (laughs) I take it Paddy thinks uh, that uh, it's being done intentionally to evict evict tenants. Eamon No Party says, Michael, with the price of fuel going through the roof, uh, the government should cut taxes by at least half. For the time being, it would give people a chance to live. Uh, another text uh, from somebody who says, why is it high risk if you're healthy with no underlying issues and have not been vaccinated for COVID? You uh, are immune and can fight COVID. I think taxis, buses, etc. cetera, uh, that uh, people should be wearing masks. Thank you indeed. I think there's, you know, a lot of people who are uncomfortable with it, um, but I don't know if we have any option but to accept it. That's the public health advice and to, take her or make her own decisions and to wear masks if that's what we're comfortable doing um, but that's where we're at uh, Margaret says it's not just Putin and Russia who needs uh, to be sanctioned his playmate and dictator Lukashenko needs uh, to be taught a lesson also he got away very lightly with uh, hijacking uh, that Ryanair plane but if it was another country's airline there would have been more about it so the world needs to wake up to the part that Belarus is playing in this war it looks as though they're going to be playing, um, or there's the prospect that they'll be playing a, an even stronger part in this war with Belarusian uh, troops uh, fighting alongside uh, their Russian friends, uh, Margaret. Uh, so um, I think you, you make a, a very valid point. Uh, Paddy Duffy saying that on the 24th of January, he described the present Russian government as a criminal enterprise. The FBI defines a criminal enterprise as a group of individuals with an identity, I beg your pardon, with an identified hierarchy and uh, something that's comparable uh, structures engaged in significant criminal activity. Paddy says, I'd say that describe Putin and his mob. P.S. When this is over and Putin is sent packing, it's important that he leaves as much scrap metal in Ukraine as possible. Thanks, Paddy. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>